WCNC Charlotte, this is Flashpoint, where power and politics collide and the tough questions get asked and answered. Thanks for joining us here on Flashpoint. I'm Ben Thompson. We've had a presidential race, a Senate race, a pandemic. So we thought this morning time to bring the focus back here to Charlotte. Lots to talk about, including years after controversy uh, that cost the state billions of dollars. Will Charlotte move to pass a new non-discrimination ordinance? And as Charlotte grows, getting around town, you probably noticed becoming more and more complicated. We're going to take a look at the new transportation plan that, that the task force is looking at and how we could possibly pay for it. Join us to talk about all of it. Charlotte City Councilman Tark Bakari and Larkin Eggleston. Gentlemen, uh, just a few weeks out from the new year. So I want to know, what is the biggest obstacle you feel like this city faces? Is it the homicide rate? Is it uh, this pandemic and getting vaccinations out? Is it the economic crisis, racial tensions? Uh, you name it. Larkin, I'll begin with you. What, what do you think is the biggest obstacle we face going into the new year? I mean, I think those are all crucially important, but I think that the pandemic really kind of overarches everything else. And I think that is until we can get a handle on that, and it does look like, um, you know, the governor just said that if we're a couple of weeks out from starting to get the vaccines. Obviously, those go to frontline workers, healthcare workers first, uh, and the most vulnerable folks. As we can get that rolled out in a widespread way um, and start to get a handle on this situation, I think we'll, we'll start to see, hopefully, our, our business climate come back here, uh, both locally and nationally. Um, and I think a lot of the anxiety that the pandemic's been causing is undoubtedly leading to uh, mental health issues and, and probably more violence and crime in, in certain places uh, because of it, because people feel financially in, unstable right now, uh, because there's a lot of uh, anxiety around this crisis. And so I think that is one thing, if, if you could have, wave a magic wand, that would help a lot of other issues. Tark, I'll ask you the same question. The biggest obstacle we face going into the new year. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you could list literally a dozen things right now on that topic, but I, I honestly would say my gut reaction is it's, it's usually the things we aren't talking about that we aren't wow. um, kind of having front and center. And in my mind, it's the long-term consequences of the COVID kind of pandemic quarantine environment we're in right now that I'm just very nervous how we're going to ultimately address them when those issues become front and center. And Larkin mentioned mental health, but that has so many different flavors from the impacts of our children in school and remote learning, particularly the digital divide and, and the upward mobility gap that has um, only increased uh, really exponentially in that time. The homicide rate that think about last year, uh, how much we talked about it then, we barely talk about it at all right now, and it's higher than it was. So there are so many uh, unintended consequences of the tough decisions we've had to make as a society this year that we'll be dealing with for years to come, and they're not even front and center of our minds yet. I mean, just to pick up on something there, Ben, sure. just to make clear that I, I think Tarek's point about the homicide rate was it's not being talked about maybe as much publicly because there's been so much else going on. It is something that council's working on, and right now it is the focus of the Safe Communities Committee working on the Violence Interrupter Program, Cure, working with Cure Violence, a national organization. So it is not something that's being ignored in the government center, but to Tarek's point, I think it's been uh, sort of put on the back burner, maybe in the public discussion because of all the other things. Uh, as an issue of governance, some of these things, I mean, you're talking about a worldwide pandemic, um, you're talking about uh, racial injustice. You're talking about uh, city's homicide rate, which is notoriously difficult to get get your your arms around. Um, are these things that you all, as as city councilmen, are are able to fix? Yeah, to some degree. I mean, there there are certainly things that that we can do as government to help 
um, steer things in the right direction. I mean, there's a lot that factors into a homicide rate, but I'd say a big part of crime and violent crime in general is if people don't have opportunities to succeed, and I think we can create those opportunities in certain instances for, for folks in our community, if they don't have the opportunity to be successful, that is can lead to crime. And so I think that, um, that creating a city where people can thrive, where people can succeed, will inevitably, and, and granted it's not a short fix, it's, it's more of a long-term fix, but it will start to curb the rates of crime overall. So yes, I do think, you know, we can't quote unquote fix it and you certainly can't do it quickly, but I do think we can have an impact in steering it in the right direction. Yeah, I mean, we can have an impact if we focus on the right things and, and you know, approach it the right way. Um, for the, the, the crime topic's a great one, right? We know what drives crime. It dri- it's, it's primarily conflict resolution with youth, right, um, and younger folks. We, we, we knew that last year when this was front and center in the community's mind, and Larkin made a good point. We have been thinking about it locally uh, within the government. But um, think about that. We've not just stopped talking about it as a community, but what kind of example have we shown as a nation, as a city in the last year since then around conflict resolution? I mean, we, we, we focus some on it, but we certainly haven't set a great example in these trying times. And I think that the data reflects that, that the homicide rates are up and the counts with youth and conflict resolution problems are up year over year. Um, switching topics, uh, some well-known streets here in Charlotte could be getting new names. Uh, at least nine of them are named after Confederate soldiers and white supremacists. A commission that was told to, to look into this issue says, you know what, these should probably be renamed. They're expected to tell city council just that in a report later this month. Uh, Tark, I'll begin with you. Uh, this, this issue bubbled up and it, it strikes me. Can we as Charlotte pride ourselves on being the new South if we have some of our, our black neighbors and black friends living on a street named after Jefferson Davis. Yeah, I, um, I, I have evolved in my own personal thinking of this just being a leader over time. And I, I see two sides of it, right? And, and one side of it is absolutely not. Like it, the stories I've heard from people passionately, personally saying, I walk past that sign every day and it means something different to me. I mean, you can't not take that to heart when you hear that. And and if we're trying to kind of reset and move forward, um, I think that's something we have to seriously consider on its own merits. But I, I wanna say on the other side of that coin, too many things have been weaponized of late and too many things become a, a political attack tool rather than something that's pure of intention and heart. And I think that we have probably one of the most divided countries right now than we've had you know, in centuries uh, and um, and it just sometimes feels like like it's a, it's used as as the wrong kind of attack mechanism where half the city, half the country, whatever it might be, um, all of a sudden bristles up to the reality that some people are facing and the hurt they're facing uh, because they feel like other parties are attacking them with it. So we've got to strike a balance in there where we're not doing things to appease, but we're recognizing true injustices, true negatives that are impacting our city and do that. And and that just, it, it, it's a very, very fine line to find. You have to have people of good faith. Like you, you got to be able to trust the person that you're, you're having the debate with. That they're coming from a good place as well. Larkin. Yeah, I, I'll support changing the names of those streets. I think there's a difference. It is not erasing our history. There is certainly a place uh, for Jefferson Davis to be remembered because he's an important part of this country's history. 
and that place is in you know cemeteries at battlefields in museums there's and certainly in history books we're not trying to pretend that jefferson davis never existed but jefferson davis should not be celebrated by having a street named after him particularly in a historically black neighborhood like druid hills which is where that street is located and so there's a number of those through the city it was really interesting to see the list they came up with because a couple like pfeiffer street i was never even aware of and i don't think necessarily many people in the community were that that was named after um someone who had this this sort of you know tainted history in terms of, of how they treated people of diff of a different race and so you know there there is something about um a street being named or a building being named or something that is is clearly meant to celebrate that person um and, and in this case i don't think they're worthy of celebration they are worthy of remembering uh, but they don't need to be celebrated I think you make an important point. A lot of us aren't aware, <laughs> you know, our history. You used the Pfeiffer example, but that's the case with a lot of these things. And once we do know, um, once you know better, you do better. When you know better, you do better. Exactly. Amen. All right, more Flashpoint coming up. We're going to talk about our city's growing size and, and how to get around it. It's not, it's not an easy uh, thing to, to solve. We'll talk about that more coming up after the break. Desperate. Local business owner Craig Ray applied for a government loan to keep his business going. But when his request got stalled, Craig contacted the defenders and asked, where's the money? I know that after you contacted them, things moved pretty fast. Just glad we could help you. If you're asking where's the money and feeling financial pressure, the WCNC Charlotte Defenders are here to help. Email us at thedefenders at WCNC.com. We're there to get you answers to where's the money, only on WCNC Charlotte. Welcome back to Flashpoint. Back in 2016, Charlotte city leaders followed the lead of most other large cities and passed a non-discrimination ordinance. It would provide protection for folks who might not otherwise be covered by state and federal laws. One small aspect allowed transgender folks to use the restroom that corresponds with their gender identity. State lawmakers did not like it. They struck it down. Fair or not, then, North Carolina got labeled as intolerant and in negative press coverage that that followed nationwide. Concerts were canceled, sporting events were pulled out of the state, businesses stopped relocating, cost the state just a ton of money. Well, this past week, the state law expired. That means, once again, cities like Charlotte can pass non-discrimination ordinances. But given what we've been through, <laughs> will they? Larkin, I'll begin with you. Uh, I, I think the, the larger cities in the state of North Carolina having this conversation uh, right now, or at least starting to have the conversation, as a city councilman uh, uh, in the largest city in the state, are you all going to try to do this again? The short answer is, is I don't know yet, but I do think that it's important that we understand the landscape in Raleigh because we don't want to create another House Bill 2 situation. And I think that some of the conversations that were occurring a couple of months ago as this sunset date started to approach were considering that there was a chance that the General Assembly could have Democratic leadership. It, it does not. Uh, the leadership of the uh, Republicans was reelected in both the House and the Senate down there. And I think that anything Charlotte does needs to be very well thought out and in coordination with other communities across the state. Because while what was done in 2016 with the non-discrimination ordinance was done with the best of intentions, and, and certainly all of the things in it are, are things I support, people should not be discriminated against uh, for any reason. But it ended up doing more harm than good. And, and I don't think we want to recreate that situation. So I think we need to be very... Uh, very thoughtful as we go through any consideration of, of revisiting that issue. Tark, as, as one of the, the Republicans on, on council, uh, 
you might be relied on heavily to uh, reach out to the folks up in Raleigh. Uh, can you see this being a, a, a workable thing going forward? Um, I, I mean, I, I saw as one of the last remaining Republicans left in this world here, um, for large cities at least, I talk a lot to the leadership and the General Assembly and folks. I have a finger on the pulse there, and, and I'll tell you, there's it's not as bad as it used to be, but there's still relationship challenges here. Um, we, we've done all that we could possibly do to to help repair that in the last three years, and I think we've we've made some progress as a team here. But it's we have to be we have to be cognizant of the fact that um, this is Dillon Rule State, which means uh, that we don't just to get to go around and and say what we want to do and and say we're going to teach the General Assembly this or that. Um, there are real consequences, and it does not matter what your position is on a specific topic. And I think this is one of the the, the reality kind of pragmatic instances of how we need to think as elected leaders. It's the same problem at a political level that we see with the homicide rate, which is conflict resolution. We all want different things. We have different perspectives from urban to rural. How are we going to go about making sure that we don't end up making a desire turn into a, a disaster um, with unintended consequences? So my hope is that um, we continue forward working with the elected body in the General Assembly as it's defined right now and as we just saw there. And that, it, that means recognizing the things that are possible with them, the things that are not possible, and the things that are, that are trigger warnings as it relates to this will escalate a problem. Larkin, you know there are folks up in the General Assembly who will uh, talk about this bathroom bill and put out um, really evidence that, that doesn't exist, in, at least in widespread numbers, about men dressed as women going into bathrooms and threatening people. Um, and you know that's not right, and you know that's not accurate, and you know that's not happening. Can you, in good faith, negotiate with these people? Well, I think, to the bathroom point specifically, I think there was actually a provision, and, and I have to double check this, but I believe there was a provision in the the law that they passed that overturned House Bill 2 that I think we still could not necessarily go back and tackle the, the bathroom issue again. Um, but I, I think part of it is, and you said it in the earlier piece uh, on a different topic, when you know better, you do better. So part of it is having those conversations and trying to educate. And I don't say that in a, in a um, trying to sound paternal or anything, but just trying to help people understand that maybe some of the fears that they have or some of the things that they've heard are not necessarily founded in truth and that those are not risks. Those are not um, things that they should be concerned about it. But it, Again, it's got to it's got to take a genuine conversation, and it's got to take two parties trying to have that conversation in good faith. And and I think you know we as a city are committed in, in having those conversations in good faith. Hopefully, uh, new year, uh, new new era, new conversations will be happening because uh, you'll need it for the next topic as well, as far as transportation around this, the city of Charlotte. Uh, more on that coming up right after this. Tornadoes, the tropical storm, severe weather is extreme weather, and we're here to keep you safe and to help you navigate your day. The First Warn team is there for you, no matter the conditions and the location. We're in your hand with the WCNC Weather app, and we'll always be there on WCNC Charlotte. So wake up, plan your day and your life. The First Warn Storm Team will be there for you. Welcome back to Flashpoint. Charlotte is booming and growing and getting more crowded. And let's be honest, our infrastructure has not kept up. 
This week, the city task force studying how to pay for the eight to $12 billion transit plan finalized their recommendations to city council. The transfer pay, transformational uh, mobility network plan includes having 110 miles of rapid transit corridors like light rail, 140 miles of busing, 115 miles of greenway system, 75 miles of a bicycle network and more. So comes the logical question, how do we pay for it? Some money from the state, some from the feds, but, but a huge chunk is gonna come from, you guessed it, all of us. And a property tax increase, a sales tax increase. Uh, don't worry though, this is all gonna go before the voters, um, before anything's finalized. Uh, Tark, I'll begin with you. How do we pay for something uh, so massive, but by most accounts, sorely needed? It goes back, I think, somewhat to the last topic of we certainly should be talking to the General Assembly. And um, I have, again, heard in back channels uh, a lot of head scratching and concern already um, for this to be kind of at, at the point it's at in a community dialogue, which is concerning and something we obviously need to fix. I, I, I have two major issues with this, though, myself, and, I, and I'm actually not totally against the, the concept of it, it just needs to be something that, you know, we call a spade a spade and, and we approach it thinking about what it does the right way. The first one is, you know, we're on the verge of a major disruption in transportation with autonomous vehicles. But this is something that we've never seen before. And predictions are, you know, by 2022, we're going to see everyday usage of autonomous vehicles on the road. And I think which cities have prepared their infrastructure is going to determine in the years that follow, not many, where it becomes ubiquitous. So we're about to make one of the largest gambles in Charlotte's history on fixed light rail, essentially. There are other things in it, but that, that's kind of the angle. And while I know it has impacts from an economic development perspective, you can look in South End. The question is, is it moving people, a transportation impact? And I think the, the verdict's out alone, let alone the whole world of transportation is about to change. So I just, it concerns me is all, is all I'm saying. And I wanna make sure we analyze this from the right perspective. And I think that's why we're having the conversation. I don't disagree with, with Tark's point at all. I, I do think I've said and continue to say, you cannot pave your way out of congestion. I do think autonomous vehicles are going to change the whole landscape of transportation and mobility. But I also think, you know, we've got a president elect now who we know is a very big fan of rail. Uh, I think he's going to be a very pro-transit president, have a very pro-transit administration. And so, you know, we've, it's got to be a partnership with the state. It's got to be a partnership with the federal government. But we've also got to have all our ducks in a row to make sure that we can capitalize on those opportunities if and when they present themselves. And that's why we're taking the time and spending the money right now to have a plan in place that we can execute. And, and funding is obviously going to be the biggest piece of whether or not this ever actually comes to fruition. But I think uh, if we don't do the work to be ready, uh, we won't even have the opportunity to figure out how to pay for it or or to make it happen. And and this will whatever is decided upon about uh, among you and your colleagues, uh, voters will have a say in this uh, next year. Is that true? I don't know that the timing is set in stone, but I think okay. that's certainly a possibility. All right, uh, just real quickly, we want to talk about uh, the coronavirus. Uh, numbers keep rising. North Carolina also preparing to receive a vaccine. As concerning as the numbers are, I and many other North Carolinians have newfound hope in the development of promising vaccines. Moderna and Pfizer both have produced vaccines with remarkable early results, better than health experts ever hoped for.
Governor Cooper adding that North Carolina will get the uh, Pfizer vaccine. The state could start receiving vaccines as early as December 18th. Both of Charlotte's major hospital systems say they will be ready to receive and give out that vaccine. The state will prioritize the vaccine for healthcare workers first. Additional high-risk adults could start getting rec uh, vaccinations by January. Residents of long-term care facilities such as nursing homes will also get vaccinated in the early stages of the distribution. Real quickly, gentlemen, is the city involved in any of this or is this mainly state county stuff? Because I know the health department's county. Yeah, mainly state, mainly state and county with the health department. Obviously, the leadership there. But, um, but you know, I think it is. It's impactful to the work we do on the city government side too, because uh, Tark's vice chair of the economic development committee for our, our city. The economic impacts right now in our city are so dire. I mean, we're going to lose so many more restaurants, so many hotels, so many small businesses. We've already we're we're seeing that every week. Um, this vaccine can can hopefully you know plug the hole in that dam in terms of, of the money that's just bleeding out of our small business community right now. All right, gentlemen, I've got to run. Time's up. Thank you both for coming on. Don't be strangers. Come back soon. Lockett Nelson, Tark Bakari, Charlotte City Councilman. More Flash Point after this. We're really desperate. Local business owner Craig Ray applied for a government loan to keep his business going. But when his request got stalled, Craig contacted the defenders and asked, where's the money? I know that after you contacted them, things moved pretty fast. Just glad we could help you. If you're asking where's the money and feeling financial pressure, the WCNC Charlotte Defenders are here to help. Email us at thedefenders at WCNC.com. We're there to get you answers to where's the money, only on WCNC Charlotte. Welcome back to Flashpoint. Before we leave you, I want to show you this. Tweeted this out this past week. Uh, and it was a tweet that showed that the deaths from Pearl Harbor, 2,403, the deaths from September 11th, 2,977. And the, the deaths, this was back on Wednesday of this past week in the U.S., 2,885 people dying from COVID-19. I'm reminding folks, these are people. This is a na national tragedy unfolding before us every single day. We can't get complacent to it. More Flashpoint next weekend. Have a great week, everybody.